So before we take questions, I thought I would just offer some more general comments about how to approach the end of the retreat and this time of transition into going home. I usually think of coming on an intensive retreat like this as a three-for-one deal. So you really get three retreats for the price of one, if you haven't noticed this already. So we start off with the pre-retreat retreat, which kind of starts from the moment that we push that button on the screen or we drop the, the letter into the mail to register for this retreat. And we, then we kind of know that it's coming. <laughs> it's coming down the pipe. And there's all sorts of things that the mind does with that, right? I'm sure that you noticed all the, the build-up to the retreat, especially kind of in the week or the few days before the retreat, feelings of anticipation, maybe excitement, maybe anxiety, all the busyness and dealing with everything that needs to get done. So this is actually a really rich period for practice, that, that build-up time to the retreat is the first part of what we get from a retreat like this. Then we have the actual retreat, which we've been doing here for the last, what, eight days now. And you all know about that, how that goes. But then after the retreat ends, also we get the third retreat. We get the post-retreat retreat, which is seeing that process of going back home, observing the process of this whole container of the retreat that we've been preserving so carefully, seeing that breaking down, seeing the, the atmosphere of heightened concentration, heightened awareness, heightened kindness in the mind, seeing that breaking down and fading away. So this can be a very rich time for practice. It's not that when the retreat ends tomorrow, we just drop everything <laughs> and forget about what we've been doing here. We can take the practice right with us back into the world, observing the changes, observing the transition, observing what happens in the body, in the mind as we readjust and reacclimate to our ordinary lives. It's very common for there to be uh, some amount of euphoria when the silence breaks tomorrow. <laughs> kind of coming back into contact with each other, being able to make eye contact again, being able to communicate, being able to just look around, being able to uh, let go a little bit of, of the discipline from feeling that pressure of having to be mindful every single moment. And this can be a de very delightful time when the, the formal retreat container uh, comes to an end. And we find that there is just a very natural momentum, natural momentum to our concentration to our awareness, that there are just naturally all these little moments of awareness that come even without us trying to. Once we, we, once we let off the gas and we stop making all that effort, there's still this, this momentum to what we've been do doing here that carries us along. We may find that the heart is much more open. There's a great receptivity, a great sensitivity, a great appreciation for experience. And we may find that we go back into the world's Connect, continuing to connect with our experience in this much more open way, this much fuller way, so that experiences do feel much richer, life feels more vibrant, more alive. We may find that we're connecting with other people in a different way than we normally do, in a much more open-hearted way, a much more authentic way, a way that feels more satisfying. And I just want to reassure you that this is okay. <laughs> So it's okay to be happy when we leave retreat. <laughs> it's okay to recognize the beauty in the world, to see what's, what's lovely and what's good around us, which we are generally more sensitive to, more able to appreciate, more able to feel grateful for when we come out of retreat. 
So in fact, it's actually very useful to notice what's wholesome in the mind when the retreat ends, to, to take in, to continue to be mindful and to register what are the qualities of heart and mind that we've really been cultivating, that we have cultivated during our time here. So we might notice that greater openness or, or greater awareness, greater sense of calm, greater sense of appreciation. And we can see this all from a, a different perspective when we are out of, the contri- out of the retreat format and back more in the ordinary realm of activity and relating. So it's very valuable to notice that. What has actually changed in our heart and mind while we've been here? The, the flip side of this is that because we're more open, because we're more sensitive, because we're more aware, our, normal, our, our normal filters, our normal defenses in relating to the outside world, the other people, the other circumstances are not as strong as they usually are. That we're, we're just more vulnerable, we're more open to everything. Our skin is thinner. So along with the euphoria, it's very common it's probably universal, probably universal to just feel a certain amount of overwhelm. We may find that we just get tired out more easily, both physically and mentally. That a certain uh, type, t- certain types of activities or certain level of activity that we consider just normal feels like it's too much right now when we get back. So during this period after retreat, and especially in the first few days. It's important, just first of all, to recognize that this is likely to happen, that it's normal, it doesn't mean something's wrong, it doesn't mean we're going crazy, <laughs> it doesn't mean any of those things. It's just kind of the, the dynamic of coming out of retreat, for those of you that haven't done it before. Some of you I know are very familiar with how this goes. Those first days out of retreat, they can be um, really beautiful, really delightful in some ways, but also kind of difficult and uh, just overwhelming in some ways. So it's a time to... to be more deliberate about taking care of ourselves, to make sure that we carve out some time to to just be a little more quiet than we normally would be, um, if we're able to, to find a little bit more time to be alone, um, to really be selective (laughs) about the people that we're associating with those first few days back, how much social activity we plunge into, um, how much media we consume and what type of media, to be sensitive to those things, and to just give ourselves some time and space for for the nervous system to readjust and to rest and relax when we need to. For the same reason, the the period just out of retreat is a famously bad time to try to make any major life decisions. Tempting though it may be, you know, it can be, this can be a hard one because, you know, during our time here we may have really gotten some clarity around, you know, that relationship or my work or, you know, this or that or the other thing and we want to just, you know, tomorrow pick up the phone and start making plans. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) Trust me, give yourself a little while, give yourself a week to readjust. And then the, those realizations that you had here will still be there. You know, once, once you reacclimate a little bit, then you can reflect, okay, what was that about? What's really possible? What's really appropriate? There'll, there'll be time to act on all of that a little bit later. So there's this initial period of reentry with certain highs, certain lows, and then there's the gradual fading away of the effects of the concentration that we built while we're here. 
So this different way of seeing things that we've, that we've been developing here, all of that momentum of the awareness and the concentration and all that openness of heart and the sense of stillness and calm, all of that starts to fade when we leave. And for a retreat of this length, we can pretty much expect that within, say, a week, maybe two weeks, we'll feel pretty much like we did before we got here. And this is when the Dharma blues can set in, the the post-retreat depression. This is when we can get really hard on ourselves and feel like, oh, you know, it's not going to last, this didn't stick, you know, I didn't do it right, I didn't really get it, you know, it's not going to work, I'm never going to get it. You know, we can, we can get uh, really quite down about how the, the mind state of being in retreat fades when we leave. So we need to remember that this is just how it works. So we've make, been making, as you know, a huge amount of effort here to be aware, moment by moment by moment. And even if it feels like nothing's been happening and you're not making any progress, I guarantee you that the, the level of concentration in your minds right now and tomorrow when you leave is far greater than your ordinary everyday level of concentration that you have. And all of those nice effects that we get um, from a retreat like this that we feel so keenly when we go back out into the world, these are mainly primarily effects due to that heightened concentration. They come from the heightened concentration, from the mind being more collected, more tranquil, more sensitive. And when we leave here and when conditions change, we're not making that same effort every single moment to pay attention, the level of concentration changes, it fades, it it, uh, goes back more or less to what our baseline level is just in our ordinary life. So seeing this can be actually a great motivation for daily practice or some form of regular formal practice in our everyday life, seeing that there are these wonderful effects that come from heightened concentration. So when we have, say, a a regular sitting practice at home, um, that boosts the baseline level of our concentration so that we get more of these nice effects of greater calm, greater clarity, a greater open-heartedness just in the course of our ordinary lives. The research on mindfulness practice shows that um, from just 15 minutes a day, so just 15 minutes a day of mindfulness practice um, creates measurable differences in the brain. It can be seen on the functional MRIs. So 15 minutes a day, you know, we can do that. That's very little compared to what we do here, right? (laughs) And there's great benefits to doing that. It really does improve our general sense of well-being, our mental health, our sense of happiness. But we also really get to see when the retreat ends that concentration and these effects from concentration are very fragile. So when we're in, com- in supportive conditions like this and we're really working hard at building concentration, it gets stronger. There's these nice effects. That's great. Great, well, you can have it. But then we also see when we leave retreat how that all falls apart, <laughs> or, at least, or most of it falls apart. We're not in the same conditions. We're not doing the same thing anymore. Conditions change. So, so those benefits of concentration we can really see are not a reliable refuge. When conditions are supportive, it's great. When they're not, it's not there. So one of the things to reflect on as we transition home is what is our reliable refuge? What can we count on? Is there, is there something that we can find, a place of refuge within ourselves that is more than just the fleeting effects of concentration? 
So as we acclimate back home and uh, adjust back into our normal lives, this is something to reflect on, something to consider. You know, what happened there? <laughs> what was that retreat all about? What did I learn? What do I know now that I didn't used to know that can help me to cope with life? What is it that stays that I get to keep after the concentration goes? And for each of us, for each of you that's been on this retreat, I guarantee that there will be wisdom there that was not there before you came. So this is something to reflect on, to explore. With the understanding that just out of retreat in those first few days and weeks, our, our hindsight is not very good. So often our understanding of what went on at a retreat continues to evolve. So we have a certain understanding just right now, uh, still really in the midst of it, of what's been going on, what its significance is. And then in the days and weeks after we first get home, uh, that can change quite a bit. We might see it from a different perspective, from the, the stance of our ordinary lives. And then further down the road, too, maybe in a few years or in a few decades, <laughs> we, we can have very dramatically different understandings of what the significance of this retreat was kind of in the bigger picture and what really came out of it. So we've been telling you while you're here not to think about what's going on in your practice, not to think about your spiritual path, you know, just to be in the moment. <laughs> but when you go home, definitely do reflect, you know. There is a time and a place to think about it, to consider, you know, where am I in my path? Where am I headed? What's my aspiration for myself? And, and where am I going? And then just to say a word about breaking silence tomorrow. Um, this is always a very dramatic <laughs> experience when the silence breaks. All of a sudden, there's going to be this huge commotion and lots of noise and lots of activity. And um, it can be a little overwhelming. So just to um, give you permission to, to pace yourselves according to what you feel you can handle. Um, it is important to do some talking tomorrow, to connect with some people, you know, look at each other. <laughs> you, tomorrow you guys will get to see each other's smiling faces and get to see what, what we've been looking at throughout the retreat. Um, it's really beautiful to see um, you know, what's in each other's faces when we break that silence and we can see the, the, the kindness and the awareness that's there, the brightness that's in each other. So look at each other, talk a little bit, talk as much as you feel like is appropriate, but don't feel like you have to you know, have a deep philosophical conversation with every person here. <laughs> you know? It's not going to happen anyway, and it'll just wear you out. So maybe there's a, uh, just a few people that we really want to connect with in a more significant way. Maybe, you know, if there's a friend or a significant other we came with or just people we connected with before the retreat that we want to check in with again. But really, for, for, for the most part, it's okay just to, you know, look at people, smile, you know, offer a little bow, and uh, take in as much as you feel like you can take in. And we'll all understand, we can kind of come to an agreement that if we feel like it's, it's too much and we're just getting overwhelmed or in the midst of a conversation with somebody, we can just kind of bow and say, okay, I think I need to go be a little quiet now. And, and people will understand. We, we'll, we all know what that's like. And then when we get back home, it can be a little sticky talking about what went on here with others talking to our family, our friends, coworkers, you know, whoever might ask, you know, how was that retreat that you went on? <laughs> what on earth do you say? <laughs> and I got some uh, great guidance from, from Joseph Goldstein, one of the founders of the center, uh, in one of the early retreats that I was on. Um, he said that when we, when we go back and family, friends, uh, acquaintances ask us how the retreat was, his approach was to say, great. 
period. <laughs> End of story, you know. Because that's really usually what people want to know. They just, basically most people just want to, going to want to know that you're okay, you know, that you didn't fall off the deep end, you know, you didn't lose your marbles, you haven't joined some horrible cult, you know, and this is mostly what people want to know. So how was that retreat? It was great, you know, a lot of tranquility. <laughs> and that's, for, for the most part, that's really all that we need to say that will satisfy probably 99% of the people that ask us. And occasionally there may be somebody that really does have a genuine interest in the Dharma, you know, one of those Dharma friends or somebody that's, that's curious and want, really does want to know a little bit more about what went on here. So even in that case, to really, to protect our faith, to, to guard our insight that we've had here and to share just that part of the teachings, that part of the experience that was really clear, that we feel we can say with confidence and not to start kind of exposing the deepest recesses of our heart or our insight that we experienced here. Because those, those places are still, um, you know, they're very vulnerable. They're very fragile. That, that, that budding faith, that budding insight that we have, it can be really hard if we try to show that place to somebody that's close to us or somebody whose opinion that we care about, talking about this, this great opening we had or this, this great insight that was so important. And they kind of, mm, really, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if we get that kind of reaction, that can, that can crush our, our faith, that can crush our heart. So, to, so to, to, to protect what you've learned here, to protect your wisdom and to protect your loving kindness that you've been generating. And very last, last, last word, <laughs> as kind of an extension of that is, uh, you know, if we've been on the retreat with somebody, with a partner or with a friend, somebody that's close to us, to be really mindful how we discuss the retreat with that person. Because it might feel like, oh, they're really going to understand, so we can really open our heart to them. But we have to keep in mind how dramatically different experiences people have here that, that are even on the same retreat. So uh, I've known cases <laughs> where there were partners on a retreat, and one partner had, say, a very difficult experience, very demanding, very challenging, slogging through a lot of dukkha. And the other partner had, you know, really bright, light, you know, opening of insight and love and joy. And um, <laughs> there can be a, a little bit of, of, you know, as much as we might love another person, it can be hard to hear their experience if it's very different from what we had, if it's maybe what we might have liked to have had or what we wish they didn't have. So to, <laughs> so, you know, there's certain things that, you know, you can talk about very easily, talk about the schedule, how crazy it is, talk about what happened with your sleep, the food, the teachers, all that kind of thing. You know, we can talk on that level, but to, to consider when is the right time and place and way to, to, to broach kind of the deeper experience, the more profound experience on the retreat. And it may be that we just make an agreement with our partner that, that those are just private places in the heart, and maybe we don't need to share those, or we don't need to share them right now, maybe later. I'll leave it at that for general comments. And let's see, if you want to get up and have like a seventh inning stretch, <laughs> then we'll, we'll take some questions.
So this is a time for all of those questions about taking the practice home. Way in the back. Okay. <laughs> so the question is about tools for working with difficult situations. Um, to be able to soften to it. Yeah. Um, I've, for myself, I've found that out in ordinary life, just as here on retreat, having an, an agenda to soften <laughs> around a situation um, is often not so effective. So if, if we just transport the practice that we've been doing here out into ordinary life, what I've found to be most helpful in sticky situations is to really know what my side of the equation is. So, so and this is something that, that we find the mindfulness practice uh, helps us to be able to do better and to do, be able to do quicker and to be able to do uh, more of the time is that the, the more that we're in touch with our own inner experience through coming on retreat, through our formal practice at home, through the general practice of mindfulness, just as we go through the day, continuing to check in with the body, check in with the mind, then when there's a conflict, when there's a difficult situation that arises, that we just pick up on all of the hindrances more quickly. <laughs> you know, so uh, very often people will say um, that they've kind of caught themselves in the act of about to say the wrong thing, and then they notice, oh, the mind is filled with aversion or the mind is filled with craving. And maybe there's just, you know, a split second of enough time to like close the mouth again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so for myself, I found this to be one of the most effective ways of, of coping with those difficult situations. And then of course we can use tools like the loving kindness for ourselves first and foremost. I think I was talking about this with somebody in an interview, like we can feel like we need to direct loving kindness to that person that we wish, really wish would be much kinder to us in order to transform the situation. But oftentimes it's, we're the ones that need the loving kindness. So to the extent, again, you know, in our ordinary lives that we can take a little time, either formal practice or just as we go through the day, kind of reconnecting with that intention of loving kindness. You know, some people uh, will do a practice of like, just as they walk through the office or they walk down the street, just saying, you know, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering, you know, just kind of offering little wishes to people as we go through the day. Uh, is a wonderful way to bring that in, to remember to to hold that attitude towards ourselves. So again, when those times come that are really challenging and we're in a conflict perhaps with another person, um, there's more of that mood in the mind, that the the intention is stronger, it it comes to mind more readily that that's our aspiration for how to be in that situation. Is that a little bit what you're asking? Yeah, (laughs) really we could just say, you know, it's the whole Eightfold Path. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's everything. Yeah. Um, going from uh, retreat, in during a retreat, momentum is built. Momentum. And then um, I'm looking for, always looking for strategies. And from my understanding and my experience, momentum doesn't build between retreats. But, you know, maintaining the momentum. Besides the daily sticks, just what during the day are different things that you know 
talking about continuity of awareness. Not just loving kindness, but you know, what Jake and you are talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I have a couple thoughts on that. I think you know the first thing I'm inclined to say is what Deborah alluded to, which is you know just seeing if the mind is attached to you know some of the fruits of the momentum that can sometimes come up on retreat. You know, if we really kind of have an expectation that those qualities will continue in daily life. You know, typically we're set up for some disappointment and some frustration. And I also think that it's important to recognize that, you know, absolute continuity is just, it's not possible. And we just do the, at least from what I understand. Um, and so I think we can just, you know, try our best to, to really recognize the quality of the mind when awareness is present, regardless of the specific objects, and when it's not present. And so if we can kind of tune into the simplicity of that awake quality when awareness or mindfulness is there, even if it's with a step or with a sight or a sound, we can just monitor if that quality of awareness is actually present. And so in that way, we don't get too drawn into the objects or the, the concepts, so to speak. Um, something I found really useful in terms of um, a practical a practical piece is you know, just really framing activities before I actually engage in them, you know, so uh, shoring up the intention of the mind, you know, so for for example, I know I have to, you know, be quick to leave the house in the morning, grab my keys and cell phone, you know, and, you know, put on a jacket, I'll recognize that this is the activity that needs to be done, and say, what's this, what's this really like? What's it like to move quickly to grab my keys, my jacket? And that kind of prepares the mind and frames that particular activity so the mind can be interested and be more present. And so we can find we can do this throughout the day, you know, just kind of frame activities that we need to engage in um, and really ask that question of, oh, this is what it's like walking slowly to the car. And then, you know, the awareness can kick in. Or, you know, this is what it's like uh, driving to work, you know. And then we can sort of set a little intention to be there for that 15, 10 minutes. And so, in that way, the day can actually be, in some sense, broken up into little segments and just reminding ourselves to really be there for that segment as best as we can with a good dose of forgiveness for the times we get lost or, you know, we get lost in thought or just aren't present. You know, I think that can be really helpful, you know, just to kind of help with that continuity. But I think that the piece that has been most, I think, helpful it's just really kind of becoming familiarized, knowing that texture of the mind when it's aware, and really tuning to that, seeing if that's present or not, and the specific objects aren't not so important. Yeah. Is that is that help? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he was referring to, but I mean, there's having good Dharma friends is invaluable on the path, really. It's, it can be such a support. Like, there can be times even if we don't really have a teacher that, you know, that's present in our area or that we have a particular connection with, just having a good Dharma buddy 
that we can sit down with or have a phone call with, talk about, okay, this is what's going on in, in my practice and my daily life, how I'm working with, and, you know, trade those stories is, is incredibly supportive. So, and then there's a variety of structures, you know, in different parts of the country to support that. And in Washington, D.C., in my area, we have Kalyanamita groups, which I, there's, there's more and more of those around different areas, which are intentional groups, people that get together that are Dharma practitioners just to talk about the Dharma and talk about practice with each other and to be that support for each other. And then there's various remote things that are available uh, online or by phone. Um, There might be some of those resources out in the the book room, in the welcome room at the end of the retreat. Yeah. Is that kind of what you were asking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it might look like, you know, just a, a weekly or a monthly check-in of some kind, you know, phone, either in person or by phone or online or whatever. Set up, a, set up. usually they'll set up some kind of schedule for what, how often are we going to check in, what's kind of the general guidelines for what we'll talk about. Yeah. And um, you can probably ask in the office after silence breaks. They should, if it's not in the, in the welcome room, they should have some resources around that that they can give you. Something that that I just thought of is I was looking at one of the you know those many lists as many of you know, kind of in the in the Buddhist uh, tradition and um, something I came across something that surprised me in regards to Dharma friends and it, it listed the five hindrances and it also listed the traditional remedies or antidotes to the five hindrances you know what are the the activities or things we can do um, that help kind of reduce the power of these hindrances in the mind. And one of the items that showed up for every hindrance was speaking to a good spiritual friend. And I really liked that a lot, you know, and it reminded me of that, uh, you know, the Buddha, when Buddha was asked by Ananda, you know, is, is spiritual friendship half of the holy life? And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, it is the whole of the holy life. And, and I think that's such a great, I think that's such a great teaching. And I found that in the most difficult times, it's sometimes leaning on the wisdom and guidance of, uh, you know, the people we really trust, you know, that can really carry us through. And it's been, you know, it can be really humbling, but also really um, heart-opening as well. And I can't think of how many times I came to my teacher, Steve Armstrong, at these pivotal moments of my life and just, you know, please, you know, give me some guidance. And uh, almost without fail, I'd leave feeling a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more at ease, you know, and stepping away and into the situation again. So yeah, it's not to be underestimated, you know, those spiritual friends. Yeah. Yeah. Question about wise action. Um, I really like um, Mark's story about, uh, he told a story about how the man looking for something, you can only see it under the light, even though he knows he's looking for it. Suggestion guidance when that happens, 
refrain from doing what I know <laughs> doesn't work ahead. And just don't do anything until something comes, if that's possible within the circumstances. So I just say, I mean, wise action. So, yeah, how to practice wise action, <laughs> skillful action in the world. Um, and this is obviously very complicated and a, like a many-pronged problem. So kind of just on the most fundamental level, that's one of the reasons that we, we have the precepts. They give us that basic guideline for you know, how we, what we should be thinking about and how we're acting and, how we should, and what kind of aspiration we can set for ourselves. You know, so to, to act in a way that doesn't harm other beings physically, doesn't harm other beings verbally, doesn't harm other beings' stuff, um, doesn't harm other beings sexually, doesn't harm other beings through, uh, you know, falsehood. So all these guidelines are uh, really a practice. To, to really practice sila, that whole part of the Eightfold Path that deals with skillful action, skillful speech, skillful livelihood, that's a whole practice in and of itself. So it's, it's, it's bringing those to mind, reminding ourselves of those precepts, reflecting on them. Again, this is another place for skillful reflection. What do, those, what do these training precepts, you know, these kind of very formal statements, what do, what do those actually mean to us in our lives? What's their significance? Uh, where are the places that they're juicy that we really want to uh, put some attention into how we're, how we're uh, being in the world? So there's the training with the precepts. Um, when, with these kinds of questions, I always come back to the power of intention and the power of aspiration, which is another part of the Eightfold Path, the, 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 the spoke of, of right intention, skillful intention. So this is, again, to reflect frequently what is our aspiration for our life, the aspiration of kindness, the aspiration of compassion, the aspiration of letting go. So reflecting on those and uh, seeing if we can connect in the heart, the, yes, this is really how I want to be in the world. So these, these, uh, all these reflections that we encourage you not to do here <laughs> can actually be, be very useful in the world to use thought, to use our, our thinking, use the thinking mind as our ally on the path to, instead of thinking about, you know, what show am I going to watch tonight? <laughs> think about, you know, the five precepts. What do they mean to me? Think about my, my aspiration. Or as, as Vance was saying, um, uh, some people find it very helpful to, to start off the day this way, reflecting on the precepts, reflecting on our aspiration for the day, setting an intention for the day. You know, let me be in the world today in a way that doesn't cause harm. <laughs> or let me be in the world today in a way that spreads kindness. You know, whatever, whatever feels juicy and uh, relevant for us. So to set that intention, and the more intentional we are about how we want to be in the world, the more likely it is, again, that that will come back to us in the moments when we need it. <laughs> the more likely it is that, that that will return to the mind. And um, also to, to really remember the practice of equanimity, which is that uh, we're not always going to know the right thing to do. Most of the time we don't know the right thing to do. <laughs> we're kind of, you know, we're muddling our way through life as best we can. It's rarely clear, especially in times of real tribulation, it's rarely clear what the correct path is. Um, because really there's not a correct path. It's not like there's one right way and we have to find the right answer. There's, there's myriad different ways of coping with that situation. But if our heart is in the right place, if we set our aspirations, set our intention, then it's much more likely <laughs> that we're going to be able to do something that actually addresses the problem, that actually uh, is a force for good in that situation. 
So to, to remember where we can work, we can't control the situation. This is part of the understanding of anatta. You know, we can't make it, we can't always make it be so. We can't make it be the way that we want it to be. But we can uh, connect with that aspiration in the heart and then do, do the best we can. And that's really all we can do is the best we can do. So we also have to cut ourselves a big old break. Any other questions? That's a great question. Um, and Deborah, please fill fill in anything <laughs> that I miss, um, because I'm sure I'll miss a lot here. Oh, question. So she's just re- um, talking about how in in daily life, you know, Saida Utejaniya talks about you know recognizing a thought as skillful or unskillful, and how you know attempting to do this or consciously trying to do this might lead to more proliferation, which is a, a bit of a concern. Is it, would you say that's accurate? Mm. Well, I just thought maybe that's why you didn't really talk about it on the retreat, is the concern that depending on where one oh. is, that it could lead to a different kind of behavior. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I found it helpful. Like I said, I, I could see it being very helpful in daily life, but maybe that's not accurate. It's a great question, and um, I, I think that it's fine to do that on retreat, first of all. It won't necessarily lead to prol- proliferation. And I think as the practice, especially when the mind is really settled, you know, that, that, that quality of perception as well as wisdom are both, you know, honed. It, it's, it's, so, it's almost spon- spontaneous, you know, that the mind can kind of recognize, oh, this is a, a thought that perhaps is wholesome. This is a thought that is unwholesome. This is just kind of a, uh, I don't want to say kind of a random or neutral thought that doesn't really carry um, either of those a polarity, so to speak, but in daily life, one of the things that I've found most useful in 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 identifying, you know, whether a thought is whole, wholesome or unwholesome, is just seeing if the thought arises. Is there a specific tone or a feeling tone that arises in the mind? And over the course of practice, we become more familiarized with the textures of, you know, things like generosity or a thought that you know, alludes to that quality or a thought that gives rise to, you know, a texture of aversion, you know. And so, in a way, I think that at times, if we're, if we're attentive and we're seeing, you know, the thoughts and there's awareness there, you know, I think that this, this emotional feedback actually can be quite useful in recognizing whether a thought might be skillful to act on or better left to be kind of just let go of or abandoned or watched more diligently because it could lead to the proliferation of unwholesome states. And so I think that that's been something that's been really useful. And recently in the practice, it's really been um, something that's been 
that I've tried to take up is when recognizing, you know, wholesome thought arising in the mind, if there is a course of action that can be associated with that particular wholesome thought, to act on it, right? And if it's a particular thought that seems to lead down alleyways or corridors of, you know, mental torment, it usually kind of wakes up the mind to say, oh, it's a good idea to be a little bit more vigilant around this and guard my speech and actions. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it can be recognized, you know, the wholesome or wholesome without much uh, proliferation. And sometimes attuning to other aspects of our experience can give us further information about whether or not it's skillful or unskillful. Does that help, Pansy? Yeah. I'll just say one little thing about that um, to follow on Vance. Um, actually, just reiterating what Vance said earlier in response to an earlier question, which is that the I found the body to be a huge ally in the course of ordinary life for uh, alerting to me, alerting to me what, to when I'm off track, <laughs> because you know out there in ordinary life there's not that refinement of attention, that refinement of awareness to where we necessarily even know that we're thinking, right? <laughs> Um, let alone what the subtle mental state might be that goes with it. But one of the things we learn here on retreat is the mind-body links. So, you know, we, we out in the outside world, we might not be able to know that we're having an unskillful thought, but we feel the clenching in the heart. And that's kind of like the mindfulness spell, right, that wakes us up like, oh, wait, something must be going on because I felt that on retreat and I know what comes with that, you know. <laughs> so I found the body to just be a great, uh, yeah, ally and alerting to me to when something is a little bit off because usually it will show up somewhere in here. So the more we get familiar with what our warning bells are, <laughs> then then we can hear them better in the course of ordinary life without that really subtle, refined awareness of what's going on, even even in the mind at all. Anything else? Skillful means for tuning into body awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, people do this in a lot of different ways. So coming on retreat helps. <laughs> we get more familiar with the body. Having a regular form of formal practice at home helps. It just keeps that channel of sensitivity to the body open. You know, it's just like going to the gym. <laughs> instead, But instead of building up the body, we're building up that sensitivity of the mind to connect with everything, really, the body and also the mind. Um, and then just as we go through the day, getting in that habit of checking in with the body. And Kamala often mentions the practice that she did at home when her kids were small and you know, she really couldn't get away for, for a retreat, so she would do washing the dishes meditation. You know, there's a, there was a period when I first started practicing that I was still working an office job in cubicle land, and there was this long, long passageway that I like would go back and forth, you know, over and over again throughout the day, going to the printer or my boss's office or whatever. So I made up, and there's nothing I could do while I was walking down that hall. You know, I was just walking down the hall. <laughs> so for a while, that was one of my big touchstones during the day. Just every time I went down that corridor through the cubicles to just feel my feet, you know, not doing slow walking, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but just feel the feet on the ground, you know, just take it, just take, you know, those 20 seconds or whatever it is to just reconnect with the body. So that can be a really powerful practice. You know, it seems like a small thing, but just really just the more we remember to, to touch back in, the more that becomes the natural inclination of the mind. And the, you know, the direction of practice is for it to become easier. <laughs> the direction of practice is for it to become more something that, that we that we made a habit, that we've ingrained into our system. You know, we just keep doing it over and over again. For at first, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of intention, 
Over time, it becomes more automatic. It becomes more just the default mode of how we are in the world. I've yet to have that experience of raising kids, and so I have to pass over to Deborah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, well, first off, just to to say, you know, how terrific it is for really, I mean, for parents or really for anybody who's in a caregiving relationship. Like, how many people here are in kind of a significant caregiving relationship, either for kids or parents or yeah, a lot of us. This is a big part of life. So, you know, it can seem very kind of selfish, like I'm going to leave you all and go off and be by myself for nine days. But it's, in a way, it's the greatest gift that we can give them, you know, because the more in touch, again, that we are with our side of the equation, the more clarity, the more kindness, the more awareness we can bring into how we're relating with them. So I am grateful for every moment of this practice that I've done in relationship to my parenting. You know, it's invaluable to be able to offer this. And, and really those, those relationships are very intense. You know, arguably they're the most important relationships of our life with our children, with our parents, with our partners. But they're really just relationships like any other. So it's the same dharma for those relationships. There's, there's more uh, uh, importance to them. It's, it's even, even more important that we be um, that we bring as much awareness and kindness into our relationships with our children as we can. Because, you know, as you know, we're forming their world. How they relate with us is going to be their touchstone for, you know, is the world a safe place? Am I a good person? <laughs> All that kind of thing that we then come on and retreat, you know, 30 years later and get to process <laughs> with regard to our own parents. You know? So, so um, but, but see, you know, seeing our own stuff around our own relationships with our parents, again, can be a huge motivator for you know, what is our aspiration with regard to our children? You know, what, what do we really want to be able to, to offer them? What do we want, to, what, what do we want their minds, uh, how do we want their minds to develop in a way that will cause them the least suffering? And what can we do to support that? So, um, you know, again, it's the practice of the whole Eightfold Path. <laughs> you know, the practice of sila, of compassionate action, the practice of, of panya, of, of skillful intention and understanding, and the practice of samadhi, the meditative portion of the, of the path, doing our own work and looking inside ourselves so that we know where we're coming from and dealing with them. And it's, it's kind of nice now we're at a point where um, there's a lot, of, a lot of parents that are practitioners, a lot of parents that are becoming teachers. There's all sorts of great books and great resources out there. So also finding a community can be really helpful connecting with other parents that are also yogis, again, to, to, to exchange those war stories, <laughs> to share strategies, to just support each other and how difficult it can be. And uh, you know, it's a constant exercise in failure. <laughs> so we need to be kind to ourselves too, because there's, there is no perfect parent. It's not going to be us. There hasn't been one yet, and it's not going to be us. So, <laughs> so can, can we just bring that, that loving-kindness practice to, to everyone in the family, to ourselves, to our children, to, to constantly be connecting with the aspiration of what our highest aspiration is, and then recognizing that we're doing the best that we can. That's a little bit around that.
Anyone else have a question? Amy. Right. Yeah, so the question is about, you know, here we're in noble silence, and so we're not really uh, interacting with each other, at least explicitly. <laughs> um, and so she's wondering, might there be a place for interaction um, on retreat? And, um, you know, actually, the the past few years I've been going to Sayadaw's place in, in Burma, and it's a very different format, as I mentioned during the walking instruction, in that there isn't a particular schedule, and it's 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 accepted that you're going to be doing talking meditation, you know, over the course of of your time there. And so, in a way, I actually found that you know being able to practice speaking, you know, on retreat, it actually was invaluable because much of our lives, you know, once again, when we go back outside of the retreat center, you know, we're going to be having a lot of conversations. And so, it was a really interesting exploration being on retreat, you know, when there'd be a particular desire, inclination to speak with others, you know, and what's motivating that that particular urge. Is it, you know, is there a, am I actually trying to get away from something or distracting myself from something? Or is there kind of an avoidance of contact, you know, and actually trying to, you know, out of aversion, protect my practice? And so it was really interesting just to see the mind kind of, you know, pushing and pulling away from people um, and and towards people based on, you know, particular motivations. And sometimes it was really wholesome. It was really just to expand, you know, Dhamma knowledge or get support when something was really challenging and, and just speaking with other yogis there. And... I think that one of the things that became really apparent was what Deborah was speaking about a few moments ago. And when you're practicing speaking, it, it became really apparent when maybe I was saying a bit too much or actually kind of art, like in, in some sense holding myself back, you know, so speaking too much or actually not speaking enough. And in both situations, I actually felt this agitation in the mind and in the body. Whereas when it felt as though, you know, this was sufficient. It's the, you know, feels like a good amount. You know, I've, I've, I've made the point, so to speak. The mind was actually quite settled. And so it was really fascinating kind of looking at that direct feedback of the body and the mind when having a conversation. And um, something that I would really encourage you, maybe when we break silence uh, tomorrow, is just to pay attention to the force of eagerness. It's a really, it's a really powerful force, you know, when speaking with other people, where they're they're still speaking and we're listening, but the eagerness of mind comes in, and suddenly, you know, awareness can kind of get get a little bit a little bit jarred, you know. And so that can be a really interesting piece to kind of hone in on when we break silence tomorrow. Um, and I also think, in regards to your question of, you know, how much attention to kind of you know place inward. I've actually found it, I've actually found that we can place 
a considerable amount of the awareness internally and still be able to actually have a very conscious and intimate conversation. And this really challenged my notion where I felt as though I had to be kind of completely with the other person's experience in order to have that connection. And oftentimes that would, you know, I'd kind of lose my grounding and lose the awareness. And so I started playing with this and seeing, you know, firsthand that really tending to, you know, the, the, what's emerging in the mind, the felt sense in the body, you know, seeing, hearing the vibrations as I'm choosing to speak, that it was actually possible to really stay engaged and be very intimate and present when maybe 80% of the awareness was just kept on this, you know, mind-body process. And so it's something that we experiment with. There's no hard and fast rules here. It's an exploration, just like, you know, much of the retreat. And there's a lot of room for creativity. And so you have to kind of find your own way. But in general, I think those are some of the the pieces that I'd like to share right now. Yeah. Great. Yeah, there's something called Greg, Greg Kramer. Kramer. Greg Kramer. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Insight Dialogue. Oh, yeah. And I think uh, there's another trainee, Bart Van Marnix, um, in New York, in New York actually, um, that is, is really big into Insight, Insight Dialogue. So might be someone, you know, worth, worth uh, speaking to. Yeah. Ah. And The Art of Communication by Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. Great. So during the walking, she ends up counting. Is that a deliberate technique, or it just kind of comes in? It's kind of mine. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's what's happening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so it's hard to walk and be mindful at the same time. It's amazing we manage it at all, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there, there are many, many different walking meditation techniques, and if you go around to different centers and talk to different teachers, they, they can have wildly different approaches to the walking meditation. Everybody agrees the walking meditation is helpful because it really does help to balance out the energy, but then there's all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, so the, the kind of the traditional one in this, in this technique is to, to feel the stepping, the feet on the ground, the lifting of the legs, the moving of the feet, the feet and kind of stay grounded in the, the lower part of the body. Um, and we can put a soft mental note, mental label on that. Um, the the lif- lifting, moving, placing is kind of the traditional three-step, three, um, three, three-process step that comes from Burma. Or it can just be noting more, in a more concrete way, what are the actual sensations? So heaviness, vibration, movement, pressure, just connecting with the actual sensations as we're walking. 
uh, in this style of practice, we want to be using the, the walking meditation to um, build awareness rather than tranquility or concentration. So it's just to be aware of anything with the walking that's actually happening in the present moment. Some people do kind of a rotation of different things that are happening as we walk. So you could do stepping and feel a couple steps, and then you could do moving and just feel the, the body moving through the air. And then you can do hearing, open up to the hearing, something like that, kind of going through a cycle of three things just to give a little focus to the meditation so that it's not just random things popping into the mind. But if, if, if we're centered and we're present and there's just a general connection with the stream of experiences we're walking, we don't really need any of that. So again, this is part of the, the art of meditation is to figure out uh, what's the best approach to the walking right now, given how my energy's going, how the day's been, what the mind's getting up to. And, but really, it doesn't matter what happens <laughs> as long as we're aware of it. So if the mind wants to count, you know. Counting mind. <laughs> Any more questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, just see if someone else maybe that hasn't had an opportunity. Any? Oh, okay, go ahead. I mean, something that, that, you know, oftentimes there, you know, when in the course of meditation, even during walking, you're mentioning that there's kind of multiple, multiple things happening, there's multiple layers, and, you know, there could be the sensations of the legs as the stepping and the moving and the placing, you know, the lifting, the moving and the placing are happening. There's also a noting process, but maybe perhaps, you know, along with the noting process, there's kind of a, a, a dialogue or some kind of thoughts that you're you're aware of. And something that you can do is just to, you know, at times during the walking, you can actually let the mind be pretty flexible and, you know, tune into the different layers of experience that are happening. And and that this is, a sort of, I think, an aspect of wisdom, you know, knowing which, which particular aspect of experience, you know, may be worth exploring or be worth tending to. And it's, as was mentioned by Mark, it's not always, you know, the most obvious or prominent aspect of experience that we should be attending to. Sometimes, you know, the subtle piece is where the most learning is, you know, where the most understanding can come from. And so this just, this just comes with practice, you know, knowing where to, uh, where, where the mind maybe might be, what, what we might want to incline the mind towards when there are these different, seemingly simultaneous levels of experience that are happening. Yeah. Yeah, does that help? Yeah. Okay, last one. <laughs> you know, I, um, I find your walking meditation very helpful in altering my sense of time. Uh, to slow things down or 
Mm-hmm. So the walking meditation being helpful in the course of ordinary life to get a little, to foster a little tranquility, a little calm, slow things down. Seems to affect the sense of time, yeah. And uh, yeah, related to that, just to mention that um, for some people, walking is their primary practice at home. So for some of us, for whatever reason, you know, maybe those of us that are, tend to be sleepy, <laughs> or we don't have a, a you know a good time of the day when we can when we can sit and be still that we're not going to uh, fall asleep. Uh, there are many people that do walking as their primary practice. Can be it's just as effective. There's no reason why we need to you know, sit. There's nothing magical about that form. So a little bit of formal walking practice, maybe just in the morning when we get up out of bed or last thing before we go to bed at night uh, or at some point during the day when we have a little bit of a, of, of a space or if there's some place that we walk to on a regular basis to make that an opportunity for to do some walking practice. Walking is a really portable practice. You know, the sitting still, you know, like this that we do in the hall. Um, you know, there's only certain places we can do that. Walking practice, we can do many more places and many more situations, even if it's just a few steps. So um, that can also be a great way to bring a little bit more of a structured, intentional uh, practice of awareness into our daily life. All right. Are there any more questions? Or have we answered them all? <laughs> okay. One more. <laughs> Uh, mindful bicycling, yes. Mindful yoga, mindful swimming, yeah, yeah. You know what? I'll tell you a secret. You can be mindful all the time. <laughs> so try it out. <laughs> really, uh, you know, I say that a little bit facetiously, but, you know, have have fun with it. Be playful with your practice. Experiment. You know, if, if we get so rigid and so kind of, you know, impressed by it, then it's it's no fun being on the path. You know, so to, to look into our lives, where can I bring it in? Where does it, where do I feel a greater sense of connection if I'm a little more aware, if I'm a little more mindful? And if we look, we'll find there's all sorts of ways that we can just be mindful here, just be mindful there. Like Vance said, you know, it's not to, that we have to strive for unremitting, continuous mindfulness, mindfulness every moment in the course of our busy lives. But where can we bring it in? How can we bring it in? In a way that brings greater sense of connection, greater richness, greater vitality into our lives. There's all sorts of ways. So we hope you'll do that. (laughs) And um, we're going to take a little break now just so you guys can move around a little bit. Please do come back at 4 o'clock for Kamala's talk and the manager's talk. That's going to be a little bit more kind of logistical, practical information. But also please do, please protect the container during this interval. There can, you know, be an impulse when when we leave the hall now, like, okay, it's breaking down and to like start making eye contact or maybe to start talking to some people that we want to connect with. Please don't do it now. Please wait a little bit, okay? And uh, we'll be back here at four o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.